Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Earth Day has passed and Earth Month is coming to a close, but that doesn't mean we should put the climate crisis on the back burner for another year. Every day needs to be Earth Day right now, so before we get to today's show, make a note to head on over to whatshesaidtalk.com and check out the complete roundup of amazing brands and services we've compiled that are making a difference every day for our planet. First, though, if you have ever caught yourself repeating the exact things to your child that your parents said to you, you'll appreciate my first interview today with Allie Payne, what she says expert on all things teen-related. Allie joins me today to discuss generational parenting patterns and how to perhaps break free of what's not working for you and your teens. Always the voice of reason, Allie shows up with great advice and insights today. Plastic toys are a major polluter, not to mention they can sometimes pose a health risk. Monica Novacek is the CEO of BB and Bongo, a social enterprise that believes in the power of humor and play to create connection. At all stages from design to production to sales and marketing and beyond, BB and Bongo aims for a triple bottom line, people, planet, and profits. Monica joins me to share the story behind the brand. Anne Brody's regular segment is not happening this week, but only because she has an interview with megastars Paul Bettany and Claire Foy, who star in Amazon Prime's A Very British Scandal, based on the true story of the Duke and Duchess of Argyle scandal in the 1960s. Never fear, though, Anne has her regular roundup of new movies and TV series up on whatshesaidtalk.com. Julie Cole joins me to share what it was like to write her new book, Like a Mother, about her time building Mabel's Labels, a multi-million dollar business with her co-founders between their children's nap times and play dates. A constant source of inspiration and raw honesty, Julie is always a delight to have on the show. Divorce is hard, but separation can be harder. Sonny McFadden knows from first-hand experience and set out to produce a documentary about it. Broken Vows pulls viewers into the lives of the women and children surviving through separation and asks the question, when a marriage ends, where do you begin? Committed to providing help, Sonny has also produced a six-volume digital companion resource to the film, which offers real resources to help women move forward upon separation. She joins me to discuss. Finally, Victoria West used her own life experiences from childhood to present day with descriptions of love, family, loss, grief, disillusionment, immigration, and more to create beauty in words in a collection of poems called Sunset in Toronto, available now. Victoria jumps in to share why she decided to pick up poetry when COVID shut the world down. It's another full week at what she said with the interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. Do you parent like your parents? Did they parent you the same as their parents? For all the times you may have said you do things differently, the reality is that parenting patterns can be hard to shake. 
Allie Payne, our resident expert on all things to do with teenagers, joins me now to discuss how we can keep the good, discard the bad, and blaze a new trail when it comes to parenting our teens. Welcome back to the show, Allie. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Candice. It's been so long since you've been here, and I know we have so much to catch up on. But let's start this this for this interview. Let's define what does like what does generational parenting look like? What does it feel like? How do we know we're trapped in it or, you know, maybe breaking free? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing I want to say is I am not here to shame or blame any previous generations of parents. We are all doing the very best we can in the hardest job for which there still is no training. So let me just say that. Even though past generations, parenting was more authoritarian. It came more from fear and survival. I mean, think post-war, famine. It was about literally being safe. There was not room for emotions and feelings. And that was true then. We are now shifting to understand, based on research, the trauma and emotional impact. And when I say trauma, again, I'm not saying your parents beat you to a pulp. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying there is emotional impact that is results in versions or levels of trauma in the brain when we are parented in a way that ignores emotions or that in constantly invalidates them. And so what has happened if you were raised like me, a Gen Xer, Um, We were raised in more authoritarian control environments because that's what our parents learned. And what we learned was we needed to perform to earn love. We needed to meet our parents' expectations of external performance, what was good, in order to be deemed as worthy, lovable, enough, important. That also required us to abandon and suppress our own values and beliefs for the purpose of serving and earning someone else's approval. So what happens now as an adult and we are parenting, we unwittingly are doing this same thing to our children, even though we said we wouldn't, or maybe we didn't want to, et cetera. Because by the way, this is not about intelligence. This is how our brains are wired. Our brains are wired to repeat familial and and familiar patterns that are hardwired in by the time we're about seven. So this is not about, you're not intelligent. As we are parenting our children, we are unknowingly enforcing our own expectations. We are attempting to use emotional coercion, manipulation, and all of those fantastic relational tools to, air quote, motivate our teenager to take on our beliefs and behave in a way that is valuable and important to us to therefore earn our love and approval. And at the same time, there's this super sick thing going on under the, the surface that as we discipline and consequence or punish your your child because they're not being the way you want them to be, they then don't like you. And so you, in this pattern of, oh, you need to be a certain way to earn love and approval, now feel guilty because now your teenager doesn't like you, but you were raised to behave in a way where people had to like you. So you're in this weird space of where you're trying to be authoritarian and control your teen, and at the same time, you're trying to earn their love and approval, and there's no way to win that. It's a giant hot mess. I... I'm just sitting here thinking, do you just describe the last like four years of my life with my dog? <laughs> uh, 
that that felt a little too close to home. Um, and you know, and, and I, I'm joking. I mean, I mean, I love I love my parents. Obviously, there are a lot of times where I sit there and go, "Holy cow! Did I ever just sound like my mom?" Yes. And what I've started to do. Because I agree with you. I don't think there's any point in shaming anybody. Everybody's just doing the best they can with the tools they have in the moment. But what I do do now is when I catch myself acting or behaving or doing something that my mother might have done with me, I have to stop myself and actually say to my kids, you know what? That's what my mom would have done. But this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to say. Because I don't want to say that my mom was wrong, but it doesn't feel right for me. And I don't think there's any harm in acknowledging it with my teenagers, because I think the biggest um, struggle for kids is to understand that their parents are human. They don't have all the answers. We're, we're there to protect and love, but we don't have all the answers, right? Right. And how empowering, Candace, that you would do that for yourself, that you would ha- allow yourself that awareness and give yourself permission to be wildly imperfect and flawed, which we all are, in front of your kids and say, wait a minute, I think I'm in one of those patterns. Stop. How do I want this to be? What feels right for me? So, and again, as you said, this isn't about being against your parents. What we are learning is that actually a significant number of people in the Gen X generation are codependent. Now, codependence comes from constantly needing to seek external approval which is how we were raised, right? That we have to be, do, and say in ways that are, air quote, acceptable to either society or those around us. That the price of admission for any relationship is suppressing and abandoning your own values and beliefs to please others, because this is how we were raised. And so we are in these patterns, unknowingly doing the same thing to our kids. The irony is, is that even though as a Gen Xer, or Gen Y, our generation was had higher emotional needs because we were the first generation being raised outside of war. Like our parents were usually born just post-war or maybe just at the end. We were the first generation not being raised in war and how privileged that was. So we had more emotional needs, but they were neglected only because parenting styles, not because of bad parents, because parenting styles didn't acknowledge them. Now we have a generation that's being raised in the digital era where they are constantly barraged and uh, with, with messages of judgment, comparison, shoulds, all of these things. They have even higher emotional needs. And we were not raised knowing how to meet those for ourselves, let alone meet those for our children. And so I just want to give you a little piece of data here. In, um, in 1960, Douglas McGregor formulated Theory X and Theory Y management styles. And this was applied to work, but I'm sorry, it also applies to parenting. So Theory X managers... Okay, they are behavioralists. They they have a pessimistic view of people. They di- they believe people dislike their work. They need to be coerced, controlled, monitored to stay on organizational goals. They believe that people are lazy, irresponsible, lack ambition. How many times do I hear that from parents in a day about their teen? That their teen that their teen <laughs> are unwilling to take responsibility. They need constant carrot and stick motivation. They operate 
from a lack of trust. I do not trust this person to do it the way that I value or I want it done. Theory Y managers believe that their people are optimistic, that they um, they use a participatory management style, more collaborative. Um, there are still uh, check-ins and, appra- and appraisals, but they are more about having that person um, find their own internal motivation to fulfill things and their own personal values within the construct of the business, if you will. And so they believe that people understand how to solve their own problems creatively and imaginatively and will get the thing done. So here's the irony. The difference between theory X management and theory Y management is one thing, trust. Theory X does not trust that things will get done. Theory Y does trust. And this exact model, although that is not about parenting, does apply to parenting. And we come from generations where parents don't trust we're going to get it done or do it right or that we're always lying or we're sneaking. And so when we keep imposing this way of thinking on our on the next generation, we are getting higher and higher levels of mental health issues, substance use, lying, stealing, defiance, disrespect, and we can't figure out why. So we try and do double down and do more of the same. Listen, I don't know where why that parenting manual hasn't been written yet, but I think you should write it. Uh, this was <laughs> extremely informative, and I think it's I think it's good for people to know as well because I think we do get stuck in patterns of generational parenting, and yes. we think we can't break free of it. And yes, I am here to tell you, you can. Yes, uh, you absolutely can, Agreed. and you will be much better for it. So you're always a wealth of information. I love talking to you. You and I have had many conversations privately, um, so I really do encourage people to reach out to you because you can help a lot. So where can people go to connect with you? Uh, the best place you can find me on social is at Ali Payne on Instagram and TikTok or my website, AllyPayne.com, A-L-Y-P-A-I-N.com. It's a great conversation as usual, Ali. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Candice. Oh, darling, don't you ever grow up. Don't you ever grow up. Just stay this little. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. The toy industry uses 40 tons of plastic for every 1 million in revenues and is the most plastic intensive industry in the world. 90% of the toys on the market are made of plastic. Further, plastic toys can contain heavy metals such as lead or cadmium or other harmful chemicals such as dioxins. BB and Bongo is a social enterprise that believes in the power of humor and play to create connection. They create eco-friendly toys with a focus on play-based learning designed to create fun interactions between children and their parents, caregivers, teachers, and other children. At all stages, from design to production, to sales and marketing and beyond, they aim for a triple bottom line. People, planet, and profits. And yes, note that the profits are last. Joining me now is Monica Novacek, CEO of BB Ambongo, which brings the products of Cambodia knits to market and children everywhere. Welcome to What She Said, Monica. Thank you so much for having me today, Candice. Tell me, what prompted you to start uh, this this 
eco this, this business with eco-friendly toys for children. Was there was it your children or was there another moment that sparked this? Uh, well, we have to start the story uh, back a few years when I first started uh, Cambodia Knits, which is a social enterprise with a key focus on providing economic opportunities for women in Cambodia uh, through home-based, fair and flexible employment. Uh, when uh, COVID hit last year, you know, we had been sailing along fairly well as a small, locally known brand. And of course, overnight, uh, the door shut to the country and we lost a, a great portion of our revenue through tourism. And we realized we really needed to uh, go for the global market. And at this point, I, I had a child. And for me, uh, I, I try to be as plastic free as I can or as waste free and environmentally friendly as I can. And in talking to uh, my now business partner, as we were developing the what, what was to become BB and Bongo and the global brand of uh, Cambodia Knits, is that this is at the core of what was the most important to us, was to be an eco-friendly brand that supported the work of Cambodia Knits, uh, but also presented really great products to people around the world um, that they could feel good about buying and that were long-lasting and safe uh, and good for the planet. I have been to your website. I have to tell you, your toys are absolutely beautiful. I mean, they almost look like artwork. They're so gorgeous. Uh, but what I also love is the philosophy of your company and how you approach, how you work with people, your your attitude towards the planet. And one of the things that you mentioned to me was that you said women don't need to be empowered. Can you expand on that? Um, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of use of this word empowerment, you know, people being empowered by others to succeed or to uh, to overcome poverty here in Cambodia. A lot of NGOs use this language, but are starting to move away from this because I feel in this in this use of that word and the language, it kind of assumes that the people that we work with have no power themselves in the first place um, or that they're not as strong or as resilient as maybe we are and that they need us to come in and, and help them become, um, you know, empowered. So we prefer to say that what we're doing is creating an empowering uh, environment or system for them that uh, through which they can achieve and work uh, based on the constraints that they face. Um, women in Cambodia have traditionally been quite uh, sidelined uh, from development, from employment, from education, and they often lack skills uh, and opportunities to earn an income. I mean, some of the women um, who are in their 40s and 50s who work with us have never had a job before. Um, or maybe, you know, their literacy, literacy, skill, literacy skills are quite low. Um, so we provide opportunities for them and then they take, take those opportunities and run with them. Um, so we try not to say that we empower them, but we just provide empowering opportunities for them. I love that. All right. We, we don't have a lot of time left, so I really just want to focus in on, on one aspect, and, and that is, uh, you know, conscious purchasing. Um, and you say that purchases are a vote. Uh, yeah, I really think that us as consumers uh, have an opportunity to, to make a vote for the type of world that we believe in based on our spending dollars. You know, we can look a little bit into the companies that we are buying from. Uh, and see whether they live by and act by the values that we want to believe in. Um, I, I believe as a consumer to not uh, support and give money to and give profits to companies that are harming the planet or are not treating their workers fairly. And while we can't all dig deeply into all of the companies um, that we buy from, 
I think for uh, products such as toys, which you hopefully um, buy for a longer period of time, you know, you can do a little bit of, of looking into backgrounds of companies and, you know, make sure they're being fair to the people and to the planet. I agree. And I, again, I, I mean, if I could turn about the clock, I, I, looking at your toys, I just, I'm mesmerized by them. They're so, so beautiful. And, um, and as you say, there, these are things you can pass down, uh, you know, or gift to, 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 to other children once your children are done with them. So I want people to be able to connect with you, uh, find your toys, follow along with your story. Uh, where can they do that? But the best place to find us is on our website, uh, which is uh, www.bbandbongo.com. Uh, we are, of course, on Facebook and Instagram, um, also under BB and Bongo. Uh, so our brand name is BB plus Bongo, but we are BB and A&D uh, everywhere else. Um, so those are the best places to find us. We also are on Pinterest and Etsy. So yeah, if you type in BB and Bongo, we are the first thing to come up in Google. Incredible. Monica, thank you so much for doing what you do. Uh, you're incredible and I wish you nothing but success. Thank you so much, Candice. Thank you for having me. Saturday Night at the Movies is on hiatus this week, but can be found at whatshesaidtalk.com. Instead, Anne is bringing us an interview with Paul Bettany and Claire Foy, who star in Amazon Prime's A Very British Scandal, based on the true story on the Duke and Duchess of Argyle. All right, so I would like to know right off the bat, did either of you feel compelled to sort of look into the psychological makeup of this couple? I mean, it's astonishing how, how wicked they were in a way, I guess. Um, did you, did you research it either of you? Yes. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I did a lot of it. I did a lot of, uh, we had like a quite a short period of time to be honest, didn't we? It wasn't, it was pretty well, swift. Very brief. Very brief pre-production. Um, it all came together very fast. Um, but yeah, I read as much as I possibly could. Um, because it was COVID, unfortunately, we didn't really have access to meeting real people. Um, because that was all very complicated. Um, but there's so many different accounts um, and so many different books about her. There's quite a lot about him as well, because they were both very public-facing, so they, there was a lot of archive about them. Um, we didn't go as far as... You didn't read the court records, did you? No. Uh, I read some of them, because they sent... They sent uh, we had an amazing researcher. Mm. I thought she was incredible. She was incredible. Um, who would send us, send us lots of pertinent stuff. And I think that you, 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 you read the facts and the facts themselves are sort of astonishing. And then you try to sort of figure out some narrative as to what might've been going on between them. Okay. Paul, in your case, when the, the Duke gets into these sneering fits or these, these violent rages, how do you get yourself there? Well, I think you have to assume that he's feeling a massive sense of injustice at how she's behaving that's warped and twisted but as but i i, I can feel uh, injustice in my life and and you can tap into moments where you think somebody's behaved towards you in a manner that is just unforgivable and and unjust and you you uh, you tap into that feeling and then when you add that feeling 
on top of somebody who's just being reprehensible and disgusting, you, <laughs> you know, you have a bad guy. Honestly, if there was ever a film to make people feel good about their marriages, this is it. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's going to save a lot of marriages. <laughs> a lot of people aren't going to get divorced. <laughs> I'm throwing people into sharp relief. Well, he's not as bad as... <laughs> I'm not sure that's In comparison, great... you're a great... <laughs> I'm not sure that's a great benchmark. So. That is hysterical. Well, they did succeed at one thing. He told her never to, that they were never to bore one another, and they certainly didn't. And also, they live in these in a castle. The two of them live in a castle, which is pretty much their own fiefdom. They make the rules. They keep it private, and the servants are frightened to say anything. So I guess they were in a great environment to just do whatever. But how did they not kill each other? The way the two of you show them to us, I always think it's going to be the next step because I didn't research it in advance. So how did that not happen? Well, they didn't kill each other. Yeah. Just, yeah, just to go back to your previous point, I think that um, I don't want to misrepresent her or them um, in the reality of what their life was in the sense that, that they, they were aristocratic, or he was, and she sort of married into it. They had a, a lot. They weren't always at the castle. They were back and forth from London a lot of the time. She was, they, they were, I mean, he, he was very interior. She was very much like to go out and socialize and be with people and, um, and move in the world. Um, and I think that, that they, they were also very respectable, you know, what their behavior and how they lived their life wasn't odd in the circles that they moved in. Exactly. Yes. I, and I think that their behavior, his, his addictions, whatever they may be, his behavioral things, whatever they may be, I think what is interesting about it and what would be great is that people would examine their own lives and who they are and the things that they put up with and the things they see and they keep quiet about and the secrets that people do have in their marriages and in their families that are inherited and that people pass down. I think that the idea that everybody else is behaving perfectly well 100% of the time is a real fallacy. And I think that what's interesting about these people is that they just put it out in the public domain and it's very much there for everybody to judge and see. But I don't think it's particularly necessarily helpful to make them seem debauched or amoral or or in some way behaving in some kind of like completely um in like like you know immoral world right and i think right. that, uh, taking lovers and and um having affairs was par for the course in the aristocracy right. and the, the aberration was as far as they were as far as that milieu was concerned was that she allowed the world to see what they were up to and getting yes yeah she welcomed them in yeah yeah and the and the polaroid she clearly she i mean obviously she wanted it found and printed i would think because she, she seems like a bit of an exhibitionist but that's just me um i doubt that yeah i don't i think it, that wasn't my i think that that is an interesting judgment to make, which is a similar judgment to possibly the ones that she received in court, was that her behavior was in some way inviting what she received, which I think is what happens a lot with women in the in the judicial system, which is I think that that sort of idea of she was asking for it. She's yeah. completely entitled to have sex with whoever she wants, whenever she wants, in whatever way she wants. Every human being should. Um, the way that the society worked then and the way society works now is that men are given that right and women aren't given that right. And if a woman chooses to have that right, then she is in some way unwomanly or inhuman or 
she's in some way breaking the societal norms of what she's supposed to be doing, which is supposed to be a wife and a mother and shut up about it and sit at home and have and yeah. be quiet and not have an opinion. So I think that the idea that she had that photo taken because she wanted to be found out or that there was an exhibition, like she was in some sort of um, voyeur or exhibitionist is not at all what I was trying to portray. What I was trying to portray was that in these moments of intimacy with a man was a deep, huge amount of her self-worth and she attached so much meaning and sentimentality to them that they were they were little nuggets of her. And when he takes them, it's a violation of who she is. And it's a violation of her experience and what was pure to her, hence why it hurts her so much that he's taken them because they're not for public consumption at all. In the same right. way that somebody today takes a picture of themselves and sends it to their boyfriend slash husband, and then that relationship breaks up, uh, um, that does not mean that she then expects to be, you know, porn shamed and put on yeah. website. Right. <laughs> That's true. Uh, First, yeah. a different world yeah. then and now. Thank you for just the most wild ride. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Working moms wear many labels, but maybe none more than Julie Cole, co-founder of Mabel's Labels and mom of six, including a son with autism. Another label Julie can now affix to herself is published author. In Like a Mother, Julie shares her inspirational stories and lessons learned through parenting her lively crew of kids and building a multi-million dollar business with her co-founders between their children's nap times and play dates. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome back to the show, Julie. Thanks so much, Candace. So great to be here. So I, I just have to disclose to people that I, like your friend, I've known you for over a decade. <laughs> so I mean, this is a little weird for me because I know your personal life. Right. Uh, what was it like for you to share this to a broader, wider audience? You know, it's interesting. I am, um, because I have been blogging for so, so long, probably over 15 years, um, you know, you and I, we were back the OGs back in the day. I mean, we have adult children now and we were blogging, you know, when they were we. Um, so I, I feel used to sharing my story. I feel used to sharing my family and being sort of in the public. But what is so funny about this now is like my kids are they're so funny. They're like, hey, mom, um, you know, if you don't do what we want, we're going to cancel you. We're going to say your book is a farce. Like, they're just totally hilarious. I'm like, yeah, you try that, you brat. <laughs> so, like, so we're having a little bit of fun with it, too. But it's, uh, yeah, so putting yourself out there, it's it's a thing. Um, I actually, interestingly, I always loved blogging. So I thought the process of writing the book would come very easily to me and that I'd really enjoy it. And I didn't find that so much. It it felt a lot like um, a really, it was overwhelming because it. at first I was like, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I've got so much content and I had other things to pull in. Like I was able to pull in other content from other things I've done and, and kind of piece it together. But it was, I did find it a little bit overwhelming and it felt like 
you know, when you're at university, you always have like that essay that's hanging over you. And no matter what you're doing, you could be at the pub with your friends. You'd be like, Ooh, I should be working on that essay. Or you could be like on a bike ride. Ooh, I should be working on the essay. It kind of felt like that for a year. It kind of felt like whenever I was doing something else, this niggling thing was in my head going, ah, oh, you should be working on the book. So I don't think I got into a groove really well, you know? You know what I find interesting, and I'm thinking about this as you're speaking, is, you know, when we blog, we we are, you know, the author, the editor, and you hit publish, and it goes out to the public. Now, when you're writing a book, that must be a very different process, and you would get feedback uh, on what you had written before it would be published. So that must have been challenging to you as well after all those years just sort of self-publishing. Right. No, for sure. And I mean, I have to say, even with my blogs, I always had a second set of eyes on it because, you know, you do, I am like, I do like good grammar and I do like those things. But this is where, like to your point, this is where it gets a little crazy because this is in print. So I'm like, this has to be gone over and over and over because if there's one comma out of place, it is going to drive me bananas, right? So there is one thing about hitting publish on the blog, but then the print book is a whole nother thing. And also with the blogs, Candace, as you know, like they were just sort of quick. Like I used my blogs were like four to 500 words. This is like, you know, 60,000 words. Like it's, it's a lot of words. <laughs> well, I, I know you and I know that you're always full of great advice and tips. So, so th is this book, uh, autobiographical or more educational in nature for people? Right. It's a great question. And it's, you know, it's a nonfiction. I'm basically talking about, you know, the, um, the subtitle is Birthing Businesses, Babies, and a Life Beyond Labels. So it's full of mom hacks, parenting hacks, business hacks, um, all of that fun stuff that I, I talk about generally. So it really is like the book of Julie, like just the stuff I've always, when I do speaking engagements, you know, when I, when I write, when I interview, um, it's all that stuff. Because I mean, you know, you were there in those early days when we were all building businesses and raising babies and what a gong show it could be at times. <laughs> so I just hope, you know, to inspire. I hope uh, to give some tips to make things easier because a lot of women now, especially through COVID, have gone to the side hustle and they are, women are starting businesses three times the time as often as men. We are so entrepreneurial and, and mothers are so entrepreneurial. So if I can help make the journey a little bit easier for um, a few mamas out there, uh, I'm here for it. Yeah. You know, interestingly, I did an interview just recently uh, and 60% of Canadians started a side hustle during COVID. 60 wow. That is astounding. Wild. And it's more out of need. It's more out of necessity than anything, really. People just need to do this. So uh, I'm sure that this book is packed with great advice for people who are starting out on this journey. Yeah. Uh, and I do think like it's funny with this COVID stuff too. You know, people did start the side hustle 60%. That is astounding. But for me, even it was like writing the book because we had weird, it was a weird time in history. And for me, it was like, I wasn't traveling. I wasn't like speaking at conferences. I wasn't doing any of that. I was like, maybe since I'm kind of landed and grounded that this is the time to write the book. And that was like, that was my side hustle through COVID. And so many people have picked up things like you mentioned. Excellent. All right. I want people to be obviously to pick, be able to pick up your book uh, because I know they're going to be able to pull out great advice from it. So where can they find it? Okay, well, right now it's only available exclusively um, through my publisher, ygtmedia.com. But come May 3rd, 
it's gonna be everywhere. It's Amazon, it's Indigo, it's Barnes and Noble, it's Kohl's. It's it's gonna be everywhere. So uh, yeah, it's 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 a very exciting time. Perfect. Just in time for Mother's Day. You got it. Well timed. Well timed, Julie. Well timed. Thank you yep. so much for joining me today. We'll have you back again soon. Thanks so much, Candace. Woke up late today and I still feel the sting of the pain, but I brush my teeth anyway. Produced and directed by award-winning filmmaker Sonny McFadden Curtis, Broken Vows is a feature-length documentary that pulls viewers into the lives of the women and children surviving through separation and asks the question, when a marriage ends, where do you begin? As a Black female filmmaker and dedicated social advocate for women and children, Sunny tells diverse and hard-hitting stories. Committed to providing help, she has also produced a six-volume digital companion resource to the film, which offers real resources to help women move forward upon separation. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Candice. It is a pleasure to have you here. So I had the honor of watching this documentary. You you slipped me a copy, uh, and it is as powerful uh, as as I mentioned uh, in the in the intro. What compelled you to make this documentary? Good question, Candice. So what compelled me was I kept meeting an influx of women who are either sequestering the court system for years or in a paralysis state because of all that they'd been dealing with, and you know a fear of what's lurking around the corner, the unknown, having to take care of the children and being an advocate for women and children. Um, I wanted to try and get the answers to questions that they had that they didn't know where to find them. So I sort of embarked on a bit of a journey, which led me to meeting and speaking with a judge to try and get some answers from him. And then of course, recognizing the bigger picture and that there was a real need for this information. And so I started my journey to produce Broken Vows, uh, which took me uh, four and a half years to do, by the way. So that's kind of where it started. It's interesting to me that this is about the separation component and not the divorce story that most people would look for, right? Everybody wants to hear the after, but the separation time is really a very emotional time for people, as you found out. What are some of the stories you share about separation? Well, first of all, separation and divorce, there's a distinct difference between the two. And um, some of the stories, you know, range from a woman who had a special needs child who her husband had come home one day and, and just clearly said that he wanted a normal child. And then there was another woman, uh, Annie, but by the way, her, her husband came out um, and, you know, after many years of marriage. And then we have an amicable marriage just so that I could show the audience that it can be done. And um, I have my own story in there, but I'll save that for the viewers. And then I also in interviewed um, family members, friends to show their perspective when their family or friend is going through a separation and how they could support them or you know what their experiences were. What was the most surprising part of filming that documentary? The surprising part, well, there's multiple, but I'll give you one example. Um, often in interviewing my subjects, I try to make it a safe place for them to share their authentic stories. And um, one of which was interviewing my own children. And in interviewing my own children, if you can imagine one-on-one -on -one interview, um, really hearing 
the raw, the raw experience of the lead up to the separation and subsequently after the separation. That, that was um, definitely an eye opener, but it, I also feel as though it gave them a voice and gave them maybe their voice back. And then of course there was another one where one of the, my subjects, Colette, her father, Joe, had shared something with me um, during the interview that he hadn't shared with anybody and had been holding on to for 36 years, Candace, if you could imagine. Yeah, that was shocking to me watching that. That was actually a very emotional, powerful moment in the documentary watching that. Uh, we just recorded a extensive podcast. And so I encourage people to go over and listen to that because this is such deep subject matter. Uh, but so I will encourage people to go over to find what she said with Candace Sampson on their favorite podcast provider. However, I want them to watch your documentary first. So where are they able to catch that? Well, thank you for asking that, Candice. Um, it's actually being released on the 19th of April, and it'll be on, and this is the first release, by the way, there's a second release, May 24th, but the first release, you can find it on Prime, Apple TV, Google Play, Fandor, Voodoo, and Hoopla. And they can also reach out to me on my website, which is brokenvowsfilm.com, or find me on Instagram at sunny, S-U-N-N-I-E, biz, B-I-Z, 13. I think that this documentary is going to make a difference for a lot of women out there, Sunny. So uh, I thank you for all of the years you spent uh, pulling it together. It is an incredible documentary. So thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Candice. Thank you for having me. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. And if you have to leave, I wish that you would just leave, because your presence still lingers here. Edgar Allan Poe once said, poetry is the rhythmical creation of beauty in words. My next guest has used her own life experiences from childhood to present day with descriptions of love, family, loss, grief, disillusionment, immigration, and more to create beauty in words in a collection of poems called Sunset in Toronto. Victoria West is a Canadian author and poet of Romanian descent who joins me now to share more on Sunset in Toronto's three distinct parts, feelings, experiences, and places that moves readers through a portrayal of honest life experiences in Toronto. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Thank you. It's great being with you. Thank you for having me. Was poetry something that always sort of came naturally to you or did you have to work at it? To be honest, no, it has not. Uh, for the most time, I have not thought of myself as a poet. I always have thought of myself as a prose writer. I have been writing about fashion in Toronto for 10 years before starting writing poetry. And during that time, I felt that I couldn't be more farther away from poetry because fashion does seem a distinct writing experience than poetry. So I, so no, I didn't um, uh, think of myself as a poet or writer of poetry, but I felt inspired starting writing poetry 
two years ago during the pandemic because of all that was going on and because of um, our social life that has changed dramatically. I was no longer attending fashion events the same way as I had done that in the previous years. So um, it was an opportunity for me to focus my writing into a new direction. And I started thinking that, I, that poetry is a field, an area that I would like to explore more. So this is how I started writing poetry. And um, another thing that helped me redirect my writing um, energy into poetry is the fact that I started reading a lot of poetry at the time, about two years ago. I became curious about some of our modern poets and I started reading their books and reading those uh, poetry collections also helped me inspired writing my own poetry. So why then is the book divided into three parts? What, what made you do that? Um, in a way, it was uh, unintentional and it was uh, rather the result of the poems that I had written rather than the starting with an idea how to build my, uh, my book of poetry. So uh, uh, otherwise uh, to say, I first wrote those poems as the inspiration came to me and as experiences made me, um, uh, gave me uh, the the material to write those poems. So then I had, when I looked overall at the collection of the poems that I had that far, I realized that I could group them in these three parts. So the fact that the book is divided into three parts is uh, more of the result or the destination of my writing poetry rather than the starting of the journey. So I first wrote the poems, or most of them included in this book, and then I saw these three parts in them. So I divided them into three parts to, to put together the book rather than the other way around, rather than the beginning of the idea of these three components of these three parts um, with which to, to build my book. So what is it then that you're hoping for when, when a reader closes that book at the end? What do you want them to walk away with after reading your collection of poems? So um, uh, the way how with the book is structured, it gives the readers the feeling that it's someone's life laid out in front of them and they can read about someone's life experiences. And um, uh, that's another reason why I grouped them that way. The way how the poems are grouped, uh, the order of the poems in the book is not the same order as they were written. So, um, um, whereas initial writing was not as intentional, the, the final destination was. So, what I hope the, uh, the readers will get out of, the, of this is to uh, enjoy uh, reading about some of my life experiences as much as I enjoyed sharing them in this collection of poems. So, I um, I lost sharing some of um, some of the some of my last experiences and made them known to the reader and um, and uh, I hope and I also uh, tried to to include a positive message in each of these poems. So what I definitely hope the reader to get out of it out of my poems is that positive message that I included in each of my poems. 
Excellent. Well, you know, poetry is, I, I think, a lost art, really. So um, I think it's wonderful that, you, that you've that you done this, and I hope that you'll continue for many years to come. But if people want to uh, find this book, uh, Sunset in Toronto, where can they go? The book is available on Amazon, on all Amazon sites around the world, and it's easy to find it by searching in the search box, Victoria West Sunset in Toronto, and it will come up. It's available in both print and Kindle edition, and it is easy to find just by searching. Victoria was sunset in Toronto. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, too. Thank you for having me, and have a wonderful day. These wounds won't seem to heal. This pain is just too real. There's just too much that time can that's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.